I got to tell you that we're going to talk a little bit about the love of God tonight. The everlasting love of God. You know, it's, it's something that we should never take for granted. I know that many times we talk a lot about sin and you know, Pastor Tom and I have this running joke. He says, what are you, what are you speaking on tonight? Sin? As it usually comes up, doesn't it? But what's wonderful to talk about is the love of Christ. The love of God. And uh, I'm just overwhelmed by how wonderful God is. How good he is to know each and every one of us by name. To know each and every one of us by heart and in spite of us he loves us anyway now, he doesn't want us to stay where we are sometimes when we're kind of messing around he wants us to get right but I love the way that he gets us there sometimes he humbles us and then he lifts us up he lets us see us for what we are and then he shows us himself. And as long as we keep dying to ourselves, he keeps living in us. What a wonderful God we serve. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31. And the reason I say 30, I know that we ended last week at uh, the end of Je uh, Jeremiah 30, but I want to read verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 30 into verse 1 of Jeremiah 31. Because... Really, verse 1 is attached to the thought of verses 23 and 24. And if you know uh, this, uh, of course, the manuscripts uh, that were written in Hebrew didn't have numbers when they were first written, so those uh, chapter and verse numbers came a lot later. Jeremiah 30, verses 23 and 24, and then verse 1 of chapter 31. Behold... The whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will consider it, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Shall we pray? O oh God in heaven, how thankful we are to have this time and this opportunity, Lord, to call upon the name, that name, the one and only name of Jesus Christ our Lord. The name that is above all names. The name at which every knee shall bow. In heaven, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. How thankful, Father, we are for that precious name. How thankful we are to be able to share that name with one another in the love of Christ. And to know, Lord God, that in the awesomeness of your mercies and grace, 
and the terribleness of your justice and righteousness. And in the greatness of all that is love that you give, we stand before you today humbled, humbled by your might and power, humbled by your love and tenderness, humbled by your purity and righteousness. and thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ without which we couldn't stand before you. We couldn't even consider to exist. I pray, Father, this evening that as we need the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, I pray that that will help us to see our hearts for what they are this very moment in time. Because darkness can exist in your light, Lord, and I know that every time that we come to you, your light shines brightly through your word to our hearts. Some of us may try to cover what we think is hidden, but nothing is hidden from your sight. Tonight, Father, I pray for revival in your church. But I pray more than anything for revival in every heart in this room today. We live in times of confusion, Lord. You know exactly the end from the beginning. And there are times, Lord God, when we don't know if up is up or down is down or up is down or down is up. But we know that you are always right. And you are always God. And we're thankful that you made the way for us to come to you through the person and work of Jesus our Lord. So may we come to you tonight, Lord, with the burdens of our hearts and not leave here until what is needed is done and accomplished in our hearts tonight through the power of your Holy Spirit and the wondrous truth of your word we pray in Jesus name Amen and Amen In our previous study of chapter 30 I had mentioned in closing that before God's blessings can be experienced and appreciated, He must judge sin. And the latter days certainly will be the proving ground of such things and events. If the Jews then didn't understand perfectly or consider the prophecies at that time, and for the most part, don't conscientiously consider them now. Jeremiah makes it clear that in the latter days, they would. Now, I don't have this in my notes, so it may not come up here on the screen, but in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, 
God tells Daniel to, first of all, of course, write this prophecy, but then he tells him to shut up the words. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And God was speaking about the times in which we live right now. Because knowledge has increased exponentially, especially in the last 30 or 40 years. There was a time that as we were studying Bible prophecy, that there was a, a, a what, what, what many believed was a clarity to you know, how the last days were going to be, that... Certainly, if we studied the prophets in the book of Revelation, uh, there was going to be a, a great revival of the Roman Empire. There were going to be a ten-nation confederacy. There was going to be all these things, and we would, uh, we would add a lot of other stuff to it. The Illuminati and the, you know, the <laughs> one group or another, the council on this or council on that, and say all of this is part of the Antichrist rising up from Europe and, and uh, being somebody that's going to make this pact with Jerusalem at the time and with Israel. And we had some things right, but one thing that we missed greatly about 35 years ago, 40 years ago or so, was that nobody really ever talked about the Islamic situation. It seemed that after Israel defeated uh, the Arab nations in the Six-Day War of 1967 and then later on in defending itself uh, on the Abu Kippur uh, attack of 1973 and then finally rising up and, and, and pushing you know, the Arabs back away from them, that uh, evidently they were, they were just kind of an asterisk in the whole picture. But now especially since September the 11th, 2001. The prophetic picture has changed. And we have to be serious about what the Islamic invasion is doing to Bible prophecy. It hasn't changed what's going to happen. What's happened is that knowledge has increased. Knowledge has increased. That's why it is important for us to study the book, the, the Bible, and study Bible prophecy. That's why it's important because of the days and times in which we live, how soon it is to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we see it all around, not only in what's happening globally, but what's even happening in our own nation today. How the focus is, is becoming more and more humanistic and off of the Lord himself. But I can say that it is time for America to wake up, and it is time for the church to wake up to these things. And be aware of what's taking place. You know, as a pastor, I, I oftentimes pray, you know, I, I often is like every Wednesday, every Saturday night, every Sunday, I pray, Father, fill every chair in this place with hungry people. People that are hungry 
for you, hungry for your word, hungry for your truth, hungry to get right and get things settled in the heart because we got a world out there to go out and tell about Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful for the chairs that are filled today. And I keep praying for these other ones to be filled. But I can't go out and drag everybody in here. What we can do, though, is pray because of the days and times in which we live. So getting back to our study here before I get off too, too much on a tangent. It's going to be clear in the latter days. The end of verse uh, 24 of the last chapter, in the latter days you will consider it because you haven't considered it yet. You haven't considered what's taking place, but at the very same time, God says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So, the people of Judah and Jerusalem would experience terrible trials at the hands of the Babylonians. Ephraim, we're going to hear the name Ephraim, and we're not going to study it in complete detail tonight, but Ephraim usually stands for the ten northern kingdoms of Israel. Those were the... That's when Israel was separated. Israel was the north and Judah was the south. The two kingdoms. Divided kingdoms. But uh, Ephraim usually re represents the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, they had already suffered the captivity under the, the Assyrians. And they, end the, uh, they ended up wearing the yoke of the Gentiles. That's both Israel and Judah. They ended up wearing the yoke of the Gentiles and bearing the wounds caused, listen, caused by their own sins caused by their own sins and they would endure the storm of God's wrath. But the Lord would eventually deliver them, breaking that yoke, healing their wounds, and bringing peace after the storm. Now all of this is just the foreshadowing of what will happen to the Jewish people in the end times as they go through the tribulation, which is what we were looking at throughout chapter 30, last couple of weeks, they're going to go through that time of the tribulation, they're going to meet their king and their Messiah, who we know to be who? Jesus Christ. And enter into their kingdom. Verse 1 then, has to be seen in light of those previous two verses, explaining the results of God's judgment on the earth, and His restoration of His nation, that follows. And so he says, at the same time, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. What is he saying? There's going to be one Israel again. There's not going to be a divided Israel anymore. There's going to be one Israel. Because that's always what God intended. Just like there really is only one church today, it is the church of the true believers in Jesus Christ. There's only one church. I've oftentimes thrown this out as a, as a um, trick question. How many churches are there in El Paso? There's only one answer. There's only one church. Because there's only one true church made up of every believer. We all might meet in different places, but there's one church in Jesus Christ. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. In other words, they're not just going to be like wandering around like they did for so many years, they are going to be His people because they are responding to Him. They will respond to Him as God. They will respond to Him as Lord. They will respond to Him as their Master. 
The promise is that he, he will restore all of Israel to himself, all the clans, all the tribes, all the families of Israel, not just the tribe of Judah, will be known as God's people. And consider that this will be the fulfillment of an everlasting covenant. Now this is very important that we understand this. This is a fulfillment of an everlasting covenant. What is everlasting? Eternal. What is eternal? It's everlasting. How long is that? There's no end to it, is there? There's no end point to everlasting, eternal. Genesis 17, please go there. Because this, this, this is for our understanding of how God is consistent. God never lies. God always is faithful to His Word. In Genesis 17, verse 7, He says to Abraham, And I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting... How long is everlasting? Forever. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Why is that important? Because, and I'm going to talk about it in just a minute, but because some people say God has forsaken Israel. Please understand, He hasn't. Now the argument would be, but He was saying that to Abraham. Okay, Genesis 28 now. Hope you're marking these down and following with me. Genesis chapter 28. Here's a conversation between Isaac and Jacob. Isaac, the son of Abraham. Jacob, the son of Isaac. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Who? Jacob. Who becomes who? Israel. I know it's, I'm supposed to say whom. It just says, takes too much to say whom. Israel. My, may God Almighty bless you. By the way, notice every time that every scripture I give you, these next two, talk about God Almighty. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave Abraham. What other promise did God give Abraham? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. That's why Israel today receives that kind of blessing from God. Because it comes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, not Abraham to Ishmael. Not Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Now in Genesis 35, verses 10 through 12, God speaks to Jacob. And God said to him, Your name is Yaakov. Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. No longer will you be called supplanter. Now you will be called Prince with God. So he called his name Israel. 
Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you. I give this land. What land is that promised under? The everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 48, verses 3 and 4, Jacob now speaking to his son Joseph. And Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty. Isn't that a beautiful statement? God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make, you, make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. God does not go back on His Word. Everlasting. How long is that? Forever. Forever. Ah, some of you have seen the sandlot. The most important and significant thing to note is that the Lord God Himself will take the initiative in bringing all of this to pass. And that because of His great love for His people. It is God who has to take the initiative because if He leaves it up to Israel, they're not going to do it. How many of you are thankful that God didn't leave it up to us to be saved? Nobody? Man, I tell you what, I'm very thankful He didn't leave it up to me to be saved. So I'm the only one here? (laughs) Thank you, Lord. I I started thinking maybe I came to an Elks convention or something, you know, wearing big hats or something. Let's go back to our text. Listen to what it says in verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Now don't tell me that the Bible in, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, doesn't have grace. Many times have you heard somebody say, Well, the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. There's grace in the Old Testament. People who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when, it went to give, when I went to give him rest. See, God had to go give him rest. Why? He was going to find it on his own. God, God knows that we need his help. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you. And here it is. Folks, if you take home anything, if you mark anything or highlight anything or underline anything or arrow anything, you arrow this verse. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. How long is everlasting? Forever. Forever. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. Doesn't mercy draw us? We need God's mercy so much. It draws us. 
You know, before we move on in our study, I want to address a common misconception, that misconception I mentioned earlier, and misinterpretation, as it were, that is taught in a number of churches, particularly theologically liberal denominational churches, and that is that Israel, because she had forsaken her Messiah, is now forsaken by God. I want to address that. I think we already got it very clearly from the text that we read in Genesis that that's not the case, but these liberal churches believe that the Old Testament promises uh, that the Old Testament promises given to Israel have now been given to the church. And that the church is now spiritual Israel. The Bible teaches us, the Apostle Paul especially teaches us, that we've been grafted in to Israel. We can be called the Israel of God, as it says in Galatians chapter 6. But that does not discount true Israel, whom God said he would deal with. And would finish dealing with them so that once again they would become one nation, his people, and he would be their God. So by simply looking at the text that we just read in verse 3, by reading those verses of dealing with the eternal and everlasting covenant made with, by God with Abraham and so on and so forth, by simply looking at these things we can see clearly that this is not true. It's not true that Israel has been forsaken by God. God has not forsaken His people. We're not there yet. <laughs> you get there. Don't get ahead of me now. <laughs> I'd like to have some secrets for you guys, but they're not letting me give you any secrets here. By simply looking at our text, we can see clearly it's not true. God has not forsaken His people. He loves them with an everlasting love. How long is everlasting? Romans 11, verse 25. Y'all knew that already. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Notice, and he's speaking of his own people. If you read chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, he is speaking of his people Israel. Paul was a Jew. He's not speaking of anything that was allegorical or metaphoric. He's speaking of his people. And he says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until. That word until is big here. What does it mean? Something else has got to happen. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And guess what? It did. From A.D. 70 on, it's been called the time of the Gentiles. Still happening today. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, do you think that Paul would speak about true Israel or, or his people Israel and then talk about a metaphoric Israel in the next breath? Or an allegorical Israel? Do you think? I don't think so. Scripturally consistent, Paul was. So when he talks about Israel, his people being blind, at some point their eyes will be open, as Daniel was told, knowledge will increase. The prophecy will be closed until the end, when it's open, then they'll see. 
And they'll consider it. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, which is Jerusalem, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We always talk about how we are to love Israel and love the Jewish people. And sometimes you might ask, well, why should we love them if they don't even love God themselves? You see how much more you know than they? You know one thing. God loves them so much. He's going to take their sins away. That time is coming. We know things that are going to happen to Israel that sadden us. That's what we've been studying. God has still got to deal with Israel. And seven years of tribulation are coming upon them. And we're not called to go out and say, Hey, hey, hey. Get out of the way. God's coming. No, we go tell them, Hey, God's coming. Guess what? Get right with God. And know that the Messiah has already come for you. And He loves you. He came the first time you didn't get Him. But guess what? He's coming again. Get him this time. So listen. He says, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I mean, I'd say that's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. God is not done with his people Israel. But guess what? They're back in the land. That's a prophecy fulfilled, folks. They're back in the land. Well, they're back in a little strip of the land. They don't have the whole land yet. But they're going to get it all because God promised it to them. Still, they're there. They weren't there for thousands of years, but they're there now. Well, God would shower His grace on all the exiles that survived the captivity and returned to the promised land. That's verse 2, okay? The people who survived the sword. They survived the sword in in Babylon. Some of them survived the sword in Egypt. But as they came back, God showed grace to them. and, uh, And so they returned to the promised land. And as they journeyed back, back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, even traveling through the deserts and the wilderness of this world, God did and He will take care of them. You see, He did that in fulfilling prophecy, near prophecy, and He's going to do it in fulfilling far prophecy. And so, He will give them rest. There are people that are not at rest today. The Jewish people today are crying out, especially the ones who live in Israel, and they're crying out for peace. They want peace. They'll go as far as accept anybody who comes and gives them peace for seven years. What does that tell you? They're going to accept something from an Antichrist. It's written, folks. And remember the warning that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come. So folks, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not telling you anything that we haven't talked about and pointed to the fact that it is true and it's going to happen because of everything else that's happened so far. That's how prophecy works. This should say something to you if you're questioning God right now. God doesn't make mistakes and He doesn't do things and make accidents. God doesn't do accidents. Accidents are not in God's plan. God saw the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end and He's worked it all out and He knows what's going to happen in the end and He wants us to trust Him in that. So how many times does God have to fulfill prophecy before we believe Him? Now am I angry at you? No. I'm just getting excited. 
because Jesus is coming and we need to be ready. So rest that it speaks of here means peace and security and assurance as well as a sense of satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment. Do you know that that's what we have because we came to know Jesus Christ? Did you know that you should, as a believer in Jesus Christ today, have peace and safety and assurance and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment? Because we don't fulfill ourselves. Jesus fulfilled it for us on the cross. We don't satisfy ourselves. Jesus is the one who gives us everything we need for life and godliness today. Everything that we have is from Him. And everything we have belongs to Him. As we're learning on Sundays, we're just stewards of that. So in the latter days of human history, which are still to come, God will bestow the fullness of His grace on all who return to Him. He will give His people both spiritual and physical rest. Now it's interesting that the word everlasting, when used with the word love, here in verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I'm not going to ask you again how long is everlasting. But uh, you know what it is? Forever. But when when you see the words everlasting and love put together here, it gives us this sense of meaning. I will love you to the vanishing point. I will love you to the vanishing point. None of us can see the vanishing point, only God, but there's no end. So he says, I will love you to the very end, but there's no end. I will love you to the vanishing point. Can you trust God all the way to that point? He also says it this way, when time as you know it is no more. I will love you until time as you know it is no more. We won't need any of these anymore. Or we won't have to pull out our phones and I don't need a watch, I got a phone, you know. Perfect time, you know. God says you don't need that anymore. Now you're in my time. And my time is forever. And you know what else he says with that statement, everlasting love? He says, all that remains is my eternity. All that remains is my eternity. Now the word loving kindness, there in verse 3, is the Hebrew word chesed. Say it with me, chesed. Yeah, thank you. Spit on me, it's okay. You You have to kind of say chesed, you know, that's... Chesed, all right. Well, that word is used about 250 times in the Old Testament. Mostly, it is found as the word mercy. But it is the word loving kindness. And a lot of times, many times, that word is in, uh, is, uh, in the plural. So literally, it means when God gives us his loving kindness, he's actually giving us his loving kindnesses. Because there's more than just one loving kindness. His mercies never end. Not His mercy never ends. His mercies never ends. Because that's how God gives to us so freely. 
Remember what Jesus said, freely you have received, freely. I thought I heard somebody say, freely take more. No. <laughs> freely you have received, freely give. That's how God loves us. The word chesed means loyal, steadfast, or faithful love. And it stresses the idea of a belonging together of those involved in the love relationship. A belonging together of those involved in a, in a, in a, in a love relationship. Here it connotes God's faithful love for His unfaithful people. I'm going to repeat that because I don't want you to miss it. The word has said here gives us the connotation that God's faithful love is for His unfaithful people. You see, in the Old Testament, communion and deliverance and enabling and enlightenment and guidance and forgiveness and hope and praise and uh, preservation are all based on God's chesed, His loving kindness. Communion is based on His loving kindness. Deliverance is based on His loving kindness. Enabling us is based on His loving kindness. Enlightenment is based on His loving kindness. Guidance is based on His loving kindness. Forgiveness, hope, praise, and preservation. All this is based on His loving kindness and His mercies toward us. Just a small example of this. There are 29 times when we see the word loving kindness in the Scriptures, in the New King James. But three of them say this, Psalm 17, verse 7. Most of them are in the Psalms, by the way. 17, Psalm 17, 7 says, Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. By the way, who's the right hand? Jesus. There we go. I'm a little deaf. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. Oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. So there's deliverance right there. There's enabling right there. There's what? Preservation right there. All the chesed of God toward us. Psalm 36 verse 7 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 63 verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life. Listen, God's mercies are better than life. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. And we used to sing a song 35 years ago, 38 years ago. I don't remember, it was a long time ago. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you, thus will I bless thee. I will lift up my hands to thy name. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Wow! That's after not having a voice, by the way, for a while. Give thanks to the Lord, because His loving kindness is better than life. Think of all the love letters that the Lord has written us in His Word. You know, this, this Bible of ours is one big love letter. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of other stuff in there, but, but it's mostly a love letter. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a crimson thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation. 
That crimson thread represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Christ was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That's love, folks. That's love. This is a love letter from beginning to end. How many of you have heard of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, British poet? Okay. Well, when Elizabeth Barrett became the wife of Robert Browning, her parents disowned her because they disapproved of the marriage. The daughter, however, being Elizabeth, wrote almost every week, listen, she wrote almost every week to her parents, telling them that she loved them and she longed for reconciliation. After 10 years, she received a huge box in the mail that contained all the notes that she had sent, and not one of them had been opened. Not one of those letters had been opened. And although these love letters have become an invaluable part of classical English literature, it's really pathetic to think that they were never read by Elizabeth Barrett's parents. Had they just looked at one, had they, had they looked at just one of those letters, the broken relationship with their daughter might have been healed. You see, God's love and His love letters to us can penetrate our hearts. It seems to me like they've penetrated your heart to be here tonight. But God has loved us with more than just words. You all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's also Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that tells us, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's more than just words. It's the very actions that were taken by God to send His only begotten Son. The very actions of a Son who was obedient to His Father to go to the cross and to bear the sins of men. The sins that would have separated us for an eternity with God. To die on that cross in obedience. To shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. To rise again on the, on the third day from the dead. to secure for us the promise of eternal life. His very act of sending His only begotten Son to die for us and in our place shows us clearly that this is the greatest show of love ever given. The greatest show of love ever given is the cross of Jesus Christ. In verses 4 through 6 now of our text, Bearing all of that in mind. God says to them, Again I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Now what a beautiful statement. What a perspective that God gives to His people who weren't so pure at one time. As a matter of fact, they had been accused already of having played the harlot. 
of having been unfaithful to their God, unfaithful to their husband. By messing with idols and worshiping idols. And yet look at the heart of God, look at the love of God, look at the chesed of God. Again, I will, re- I will build you, I will re- you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Take note of the phrase, O virgin of Israel, when God reconciles His backsliding people to Himself. He will cleanse them from all sin. I truly believe that when God forgives a person who has committed grave sin before Him, even at the point of violation to a person's body, and they bear the shame and the, and the pain and the guilt of, of what has taken place, when given completely to God, God restores a person. God restores a person to a new life. There might be some things that can't be restored physically, but God deals with the spiritual. God deals with the heart. And when He heals you, He heals you completely. And they will be like pure and defiled virgins. And you see, only God can accomplish that for those He loves. Only God can accomplish that. When the people are cleansed from their sins and dwell in the reunited nation that is called Israel, there will be three wonderful results that we read in this passage. The people are going to sing and dance for joy. They're going to sing and dance for joy. Secondly, the people are going to be able to plant and enjoy the fruit of their labor without fear of attack from their enemies, even in Samaria. And you know, during the time of Jesus, Jews did not go through Samaria. God is saying, we're going to restore all of that. All that's going to be clean, it's going to be pure, and all the land is going to be right to plant. And what you plant, you eat. And what you eat is good and it's common in the sense that it's ordinary food. Just plant it and eat it and enjoy it because you're protected in the land that I've given you. The people will make a commitment to true worship. And the watchmen or the prophets of God will direct the people of Ephraim to worship the Lord in Zion. You see, when the, when, the, when the nation was divided, those in Judah worshipped in Jerusalem like God had commanded all of them to do. But those who had gone to the north, the ten northern tribes that had joined together, they worshipped in Samaria. You remember when Jesus meets up with a woman in Samaria, and she talks about, you know, to kind of distract her from her sin, she talks about worship. They worship in Mount Gerizim and all of that. But he, the Lord says, hey, there'll come a time when they're all, everyone's going to worship. In Jerusalem. That's God's intention. That was always God's intention. 
So that's going to happen. So as the Lord has given such a wonderful promise of reconciliation to His people Israel, so has that promise been extended to us. No matter how far away you've moved or we've moved from the Lord, no matter how much we have backslidden, and I'm not here to ask, you know, okay, who's backsliding? I don't need to see any hands. But I want you to know that God knows, and God's aware of your heart. Yet no matter how much we have backslidden, the Lord longs for us to be reconciled to Him. How, how He longs to be reunited with us. His desire is to shower us with His grace and give us physical and spiritual rest, rest of body and soul. I tell you this, when we live so much in a, in a state of, of, of guilt and sin, it not only affects our spiritual life, many times it affects our, spiritual, our, our physical life. Many times we struggle physically. It's not to say that just because we've we, we got to go to the doctor or this and that. And you know, well, you must be in sin. No, but those who are in sin can tell you they're not always in good health. His desire is for us to experience peace and security and assurance and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment in life. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. And I should have told you to keep your finger in Romans 5. I know we were there earlier, but verses 9 through 11, the next section of what we read in verse 8, much more than having been now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. We shall be saved from wrath. I don't wish wrath on anybody, folks. <laughs> Even our worst enemies, we don't want wrath on them. But you know what? If people refused God, if they refused to accept Him as, as God and as Lord and Master, what's going to happen? Wrath is going to come. Just read Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of, for the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Let's read on here in verse, uh, where are we? Verse 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So reconciliation was what God wants with His people, and it's what God wanted with us. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So it was by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that we were reconciled to God. We have been separate from Him, enemies of Him, wickedness abounding in us, but not even close to Him. And yet through the blood of His cross, we came to Christ. We've been reconciled to Him. Colossians 1, verses 19 to 23. Some of this I read the other day during communion. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled, there it is again, in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
That is what God wanted and wants with his people. That is what God wanted with us. For us to be reconciled to him. To be brought back to him. Because you see, he created us in his image. But in sin, we, we reverse the image that we had. But coming to Jesus, it brings us back. Soul, spirit, or spirit, soul, body. In the image of Christ. So as we move on now, we will see that God gives a wonderful promise to save and to abundantly provide for His people. And because of this wonderful salvation and provision, the people are encouraged to shout praises and sing to the Lord. I tell you, this little section we're studying tonight, we're only going to go through verse 9. But this little section here says a lot about rejoicing and praising and singing unto the Lord. That's an important part about us expressing our gratitude, our thanksgiving to what God, or, or for what God has done, and doing that to Him. So it says in verse 7 of our text, Jeremiah 31, For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Proclaim and give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the women with child, and the one who labors with child, together. A great throng, uh, throng shall return there, they shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. We'll deal with Ephraim being firstborn next time, we'll start there. But what we find here in this passage in verses 7 through 9 is not just a reference to their return from Babylon or even their return to the land in 1948. While that can be seen as, as somewhat partially fulfilled, the passage also refers to the kingdom age. It refers to that time which is to come when God brings his people back home. You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24... In verses 29 through 31, he said, immediately after the tribulation. Now, what were we talking about last week? We were talking about the tribulation period, the seven-year period, before Jesus returns to save his people. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And notice verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. The sound of the trumpet is the shofar. Calling his people, you see. Together, his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so God's restoration will be accompanied by songs of joy and the praises of His people for His deliverance. Now, no one is going to be too far away for the Lord to restore them. No one will be too insignificant for the Lord to deliver them. The blind and the lame, the women with children. God will lead these on their new exodus into Israel and provide for their every need. The Lord will place them on a level, it says a straight path. That means a level path. So that they do not stumble. You know, if you try to walk on, on very rocky ground and, and uh, you know, very up and down type of situation, you know, you know, normally you'll find a way to stumble. I do. I always find a way to stumble. But if the path is level and it's straight, 
It's so that we don't fall and stumble. This signifies the care and the compassion of the Lord for His people. And then I want to point out that in the beginning of verse 9, the weeping that is mentioned there has a twofold meaning for me. And it should for us. First of all, I believe the weeping was due to their realization. Now listen carefully. The realization of how far they had transgressed the words of God and what it took God to do to awaken them out of their spiritual sleep. That weeping was due to their realization of how far they had sinned against the words of God. I think they were broken over that. Especially as they came home and they saw the destruction of Jerusalem and they saw the destruction of the temple. When they saw no stone upon another, they wept because they realized what their sins had done. Do you know that when we sin, we don't only sin against ourselves. We're going to affect other people's lives when we sin. And we might see ruin all about us. Let's take to heart how much God hates sin. And let's do everything to fear God as Joseph did when he ran from Potiphar's wife because he knew it was wrong but she was planning, planning and plotting he ran even naked in the streets of course everybody said well see he's messing around so they arrested him and put him in jail for 13 years but you know what better that than to have sinned against his God and so it brings me to the second point it reminds me of how little weeping is seen over sin today Especially people who say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian man, but, you know, God's already saved me, so. You know, sin, sin, God's, God hates sin. God hates sin. And little weeping is seen over sin today, especially by some who profess faith in Christ, as if sin was not a big deal. I'm here to tell you, sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. I think of the words of James in James chapter 4. Listen to how he begins this passage in verse 4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. You know who he's speaking to? He's speaking to the church. Talk about awakening the church. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, everything that Israel did made them enemies of, it, of their God, who loved them and created them to be his people. But here he's speaking to the church. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Now, true and thankfully he gives more grace. Therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. There's no grace given to the proud. The proud, you see, thinks, the proud think that, you know, their pride is all they need. The humble says, God, I need all your grace just to make it through. Therefore, submit to God, he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Now notice this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember we talked about how we said that grace is in the Old Testament? Well, there's a little bit of uh, (laughs) admonition here in the New Testament. Some legal admonition to a certain extent. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he says, lament and mourn and weep. Three words that deal with, with weeping. Lamenting, mourning, and weeping. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. You see, that's what sin does to a heart. But if we act as if sin is nothing, our hearts are hard. God needs to melt them. You see Psalm 51 verse 17, words of David after his great sin. This is, this is his confession before God. This is actually his plea for, for forgiveness. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. If sin doesn't break you, God's going to break your pride. So confess. Get right with God. Take it straight to Him. Take it to Him. The Lord will always give His people water. I just got to finish up here, so. The Lord will always give His people water to satisfy their thirst as in the wilderness journey in, uh, from Egypt. Isaiah 35, verses 6 through 8 says, Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool in the thirsty land. Springs of water in the habitation of jackals, where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. The highway of holiness. You see, God is concerned with holiness in our lives. Isaiah 43, verse 19, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah 49, verses 10 and 11. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Everything straight, narrow, level, elevated. God's work for his people to trod. In Matthew 5, verse 6, it says... Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
You see, when you compare that to the end of verse uh, verse 9, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way. They shall not stumble. That's what God provides at the end for his people. Lastly, as we look at the mention of Israel and Ephraim, both speaking of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, their mention is to signify that the ten tribes of the north were no longer severed from Judah, but forming one people once again. This is also to remind us how much God cares for Israel, because he is the father of Israel, and Israel, or Ephraim, is his preeminent son. I just want to close with Deuteronomy 32 now, bringing that thought of God being their father. Because, you know, Jews, don't, they, don't, they don't call God their father. But it is something that we need to see that is in the Old Testament. It is in Deuteronomy. It says, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? See, even there, God is saying, Are not your father? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. God said, I'm the father of Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. We'll pick up at that point next time. Shall we pray?